Thank you, Dan. Thank you, choir and instrumentalists for leading us so well in worship this morning. Are you thankful for your freedom today? I know I am. This is a special time of year where we're able to stop and celebrate the freedom that we've been afforded at a great cost. This morning I want to talk to you about temptation. And I want to talk to you specifically about how Jesus was tempted and how he handled it. But before we get there, I want you to consider that temptation is a constant in our lives. In fact, there's never an age that you're going to get to where you're impervious to temptation. You won't ever get so spiritually mature where you won't be affected by temptation. There's no place you can go and run and hide from all of temptation. Sure, the details of our temptation may change from day to day and time to time, but it'll always be there. And we're tempted by a lot of things, aren't we? There's so many different areas and arenas in life that we are tempted in. Even things like physical needs, things like food that we're tempted with. Sometimes to eat too much of it, sometimes to eat the wrong things. You know, I was thinking just a moment, we'll be going to our Bible study classes. And if you hadn't had a chance to attend those, you should. Not only do you have a great chance to grow in community and grow in your faith, and also you have a great chance to have some incredible food. (laughs) Because there's like homemade breakfast there sometimes. There's donuts. Those are tough to pass up, huh? You know, I've noticed as I've been here at the church for a few years now, as I walk around to the different areas in the church that uh, some of you deal with this donut dilemma very well. You just go and get a donut. It's a sensible treat. You go sit down, no harm, no foul. But I've noticed there's some universal characters around the church. Doesn't matter what floor you're on. Doesn't matter what age you are, these people are always there. They always show up. The first is the hoverer. The hoverer. The hoverer is waiting just outside the door for the person to be ambushed as they come through with the donuts, with those sweet little rings of joy. They're there ready to attack them in the second that they're there, they're jumping in those donuts and taking off the hover. The next is the halfer. You know the halfer. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, some way, they can always find a small little white serrated plastic knife, can't they? I'm just going to have half today. And they cut that in half and it's left there. Can I tell you on the behalf of whole, whole donut eaters... We don't want your half. (laughs) There's whole donuts in that box. You may push back a bit and say, oh, but there's other halfers. Yes, but they know that you came to the early service and you have all that Christian fellowship on your hands and they don't want your half either. (laughs) The halfer. One of my least favorite is the hijacker. You know it well, you're waiting in line, you've got your eye on that donut, the one that you like. 
There's a person in front of you, it's almost your turn, you're watching it, and there they go unapologetically with a smile and they take that last donut that you wanted, they hijack it. And the only thing that left is that one cake donut that nobody wants that has no icing, nothing in it. Nobody wants that donut. It's a ring of disappointment. It's a loop of lies, we don't want that. Can we just together with one heart in the spirit of unity say to donut makers everywhere, stop playing games, we don't want that donut. In fact, we feel a little hurt, maybe betrayed when we ask for that mixed dozen and you put three in there, quit it. So we have the hoverer, we have the halfer, the hijacker. What about the hawk? The hawk doesn't even go to your Sunday school class. <laughs> you know who you are. Your class is stuck with the healthy couple that week that's making the breakfast and they've made some kind of muffin with kale on it. You're biding your time now for this other class to empty and right as soon as it's over, the hawk swoops in to see what's left over, only to find a half. <laughs> Wonder who's responsible for that? Halfers. Finally, finally, there's the hater. The hater. The hater just completely abstains from all donuts. In fact, when you have that face-sized fritter that you're walking back to your chair with, they give you that look of disapproval. <laughs> and I think we can all agree that obviously those are the people that we can't trust, right? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. The truth is they may be the wisest among us. But the reality is even things like physical need, even things like food, we can find temptation in. That's just one of a countless multitude. There's so many areas that we're tempted in that our flesh finds appealing. Greed, gossip, pride, lust, wrath, envy, laziness, bitterness, conceit, hate, idolatry, slander, malice, ungratefulness. The list goes on and on. And temptation itself isn't sin and God isn't disappointed or displeased when we're tempted. To face fierce temptation doesn't mean that we're guilty as if we had actually committed sin, because we know Jesus himself was tempted and never sinned. However, we know that temptation is the gateway. It's where sin begins. In Luke 4, Jesus is in between his baptism and in the beginning of his public ministry. In this preparatory passage, we find the temptation of Jesus. The truth about triumph in temptation is found here. I believe if we comprehend and we carry out the example that Jesus lays out in this passage, I truly believe it has the potential to be transformational in our lives. Will you look at that passage with me? Hopefully you already have it turned there in your Bibles. Hopefully you have, if you don't have a Bible with you, you have it turned on. 
but I want you to, to put your eyes on it with me and I want us to, to read this together and kind of set the stage for what's happening here. Let's look at verses one and two. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. In this passage, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit to face Satan. Jesus goes into the wilderness alone, and he's not facing an angry Pharisee, not a demon-possessed man, not a stormy voyage on the open sea, but literally to combat face-to-face the one who embodies all that is evil, the devil himself. To add to it, he eats nothing. He is in a physically compromised position. Look on at verse three, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In that first temptation, Satan challenges Jesus' divine power. If you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. His voice is even condescending, isn't it? And his voice in your life will often be condescending. Jesus replies, man shall not live by bread bread alone. Verse five, he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I'll give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Apparently in this supernatural fashion, In a moment's time, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. If if you'll worship me, I'll give it to you. And although there's some scriptural evidence that, that Satan has power in this world, it's not completely true what he's saying. We know that the Psalms tell us that the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Satan tends to be a bit of an exaggerator. The same is true in your life. The idea here is very serious. Worship in this passage means to bow the knee. Consider our Savior bowing the knee to our adversary, the one who is present and involved in creation, prostrating himself before the created being that committed the ultimate treason. But Jesus knows that the devil tends to write checks with his mouth that Hell's Bank never intends to cash. At least they don't pay out in the way that was promised. And the Lord again returns to the law. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse nine, and he led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw down yourself from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And again, Jesus answered, said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. The Lord takes him up to the pinnacle, sorry, Satan takes the Lord up to the pinnacle of the temple and recites a bit of scripture himself, borrowing from Jesus' rebuttal. He says, it is written, and then he takes scripture out of contest. Satan is no stranger to the words of God, and he twists them. Jesus knows that truth twisted is not to be trusted. Jesus isn't fooled, and again, he responds with scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Finally, in verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him to an opportune time. The devil leaves, but he isn't finished by any means. He will bide his time until an opportune time. 
In the story, there's really just there's really just two characters, isn't there? There's Satan and there's Christ. There's the devil and there's Jesus. And this morning, we can learn from both and ultimately how to follow our example. This morning, I want you to consider the tactics of the enemy and the triumph of our example. The tactics of the enemy and the triumph of our example. Let's start with the tactics of the enemy. The first is deception. See, the whole account in Scripture is a failed attempt to deceive Jesus. Show me you're the Son of God. Bow the knee to me. Look what you'll get. Just jump. Angels will take care of you. And you need to know from the, from the, from the garden to his fiery grave, Satan is a deceiver. When I was a boy, I was waiting for my mom to come pick me up at school. And believe it or not, I was even a bit more awkward then than I am now. At the time, I was very shy, and I remember waiting for my mom to come pick me up, and um, there was a boy who was a a really popular kid there in elementary. I remember he was good at all the sports. Everybody liked him, and I remember he came and talked to me uh, when I was waiting for my mom. He came, in fact, he he put his arm around me, and we started talking, and I thought, man, this is weird. We started talking. He started to say some stuff, and he said, hey, Brad, how was your winter as a kid, I don't remember, I was maybe in fourth grade or something, I was like, fine, I guess. So, well, did you, did you have a good spring? Sure, sure I had a good spring. How was your summer? Well, I started thinking about it, I was like, it's pretty good. I went swimming, did some stuff, so I'm getting into it. And he said, well, Brad, I hope you have a nice fall. And he trips me in front of everyone. The pain of embarrassment was much more than the pain of falling on my face, I have to say. And I don't tell you that story because I thought that boy was Satan. (laughs) Although I'll let you make your own conclusions. (laughs) I want to tell you that because that is how evil works in our lives. That's how Satan works in your life. He comes beside you. He puts a warm arm around you. Begins to talk to you make you feel like you're being heard like you matter. He wants to whisper things in your ear that you want to hear. And all the while, while he walks with us, he's only there to watch you fall. Satan is a deceiver. He worked to deceive Jesus, and he works to deceive you. He's a deceiver. Jesus experienced Satan's deception Later in Scripture, he would said he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. It's who Satan is. He wants to deceive you. He uses deception but also determination. Remember what Luke wrote at the end of the count? Well, he was done with him for a while. He would be coming back when there was an opportune time. Satan is relentless in his pursuit to destroy your life. John told us in Revelation that day and night he accuses the brethren. He won't give up and he's patiently waiting for you to do just that. Satan uses deception as a tactic and determination as a tactic. Finally, destruction. Make no mistake, the temptation of Christ is a laser-sided attempt at the destruction of God's plan for redemption in humanity. 
And the temptation he sets before you is intended to destroy you as well. Satan is a predator lying to rip us into shreds. He's lying in wait. Peter would warn, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, like a roaring lion, is walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Revelation 9 gives him a Hebrew and a Greek name. They mean the destroyer and the one who destroys. See, we have an adversary who uses tactics against us. He's there to deceive us, and he's determined to destroy us. I also want you to consider not just the tactics of the enemy, but the triumph of our example in Jesus. Jesus was, number one, ready. See, the Holy Spirit guided Jesus in his earthly life, providing a pattern for his followers to understand He was empowered and led by the Spirit. He was prepared for this. And you know what, for us, it's important for us to stop and recognize that encountering God and being filled with the Spirit are certainly not guarantees that we'll be resistant to attack either. I love what Randy Alcorn, the author, says. He says, everything that comes into your life, yes, even evil and suffering is father-filtered. Whether suffering brings us to Christ's likeness depends to some degree upon our willingness to submit to God, to trust him and draw our strength from him. This was a father-filtered account for Jesus. Jesus was full of the Spirit, was being led by the Spirit And often we yield to temptation because we are not prepared ourselves to face it. Galatians 5, 16 says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Christ was ready, but he also resists. You ever watched your favorite team? Maybe maybe the media hyped up a game. You had friends and family come over. You cooked out. A bunch of people at your house. You're watching your favorite team. The game starts And from start to finish, your team shows no resistance. They just roll over and get destroyed. I think we've all had that situation happen before. We need to know that that plan does not work when we face the devil. There has to be fight. There has to be resistance. There has to be an attempt to go against Satan. There's no room and no place for pacificity in the battle against evil. Christ, our example, teaches us to resist the temptation. Christ was ready. He resists and then he refutes because each failed blow fired at Christ is met with a sword. Jesus goes back to God's word each time to combat Satan. And speaking of spiritual battle, Ephesians 6, 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Please understand when we are tempted, God's word is what we must fight with. No matter the accolades or accomplishments, the degrees that experts hold, as much as we trust the words of friends and family, no words can be trusted like God's. He is the source of truth and his word is the weapon we triumph with when we face temptation. 
Years ago, I'd started a new job and my wife was calling. The secretary told me on the phone, it it sounds urgent. And so I was concerned when I picked up the phone and I picked up the phone, I said, hello. And my wife said, there's a mouse in the house and you have to come home. I said, okay, we didn't live far from the church. This was our first mouse experience. So I drive home quickly, I get there, and I kid you not, my wife and son are up against the wall in another room, and our furniture is disheveled, and family discord had ensued, and my wife says, get that mouse out of our house. And so I begin to shovel things around and move things, and then sure enough, a mouse darts out, She said, you get that thing out of my house. So I'd never tried to catch a mouse before. And so I go out and buy a trap. And in fact, I seek wise counsel about it. And I try to find out how to do this. And so someone tells me, if you'll bait it with peanut butter, you'll you'll get this mouse. Okay, so I put peanut butter on this trap. I come down the next day like it's Christmas morning. I want to get this guy. I, I come down and he has licked the trap clean. Day two. I try a different peanut butter on recommendation. Come down, licked clean. I'm giving him a feast, right? And he's he's taunting me now by this point. It's getting worse and my wife is upset about it. I go back and I read some more and I find out that if you use bacon and peanut butter, it's irresistible and there's no way that it can't, Uh, The trap won't be set and it won't be triggered when the mouse goes for it. I got to tell you, it is yours. As I'm putting on there, I'm like, I want to try this. But I knew that it would be a mistake. So I bait this trap. I come down the next day and it hasn't been touched. But later on, a couple hours later, I hear the, the snap of the trap. I went and looked and I'm telling you, I got him. I got him. I love to tell that story because it, number one, cracks me up. And I like to remind my wife about it. (laughs) But in our lives, we often fail to recognize the trap that's being set before us before it's too late. Satan has carefully customized an attack plan for your life. He sets traps for you throughout your existence to catch you, to trap you, to injure you, scar you, ultimately destroy you, render you useless to God's plan. And what may seem like a simple slip into temptation is actually an orchestrated attack in which we feel in control, but all the while in the shadows at our back, a sinister figure is pulling the strings. See, we know the Implication was immeasurable during the temptation of Jesus. The redemption of mankind was at stake and our tendency may be to dismiss our struggles as minor or insignificant. The consequences of sin, however, never are and Satan won't relent. So we can learn so much from the tactics of the enemy but we can also follow the triumph of our example in Jesus. See, following Jesus is paramount in the life of the believers. Peter would say that we've been left with an example. and We've been called to follow in his steps. So the calling over every believer is to follow Jesus. We want to follow him in the way he defeated Satan. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, and he fought back with the Word of God. So listen to me. When it comes to temptation... If you want to follow the Son of God, 
We must be filled with the Spirit of God and fight with the Word of God. Listen to that. If we want to follow the Son of God, we must be filled with the Spirit of God and fight with the Word of God. So the question then is, who or what are you following after? Who or what are you filling yourself with if you're fighting? How are you fighting against temptation? How we answer those questions will show whether we're being successful or we're failing when it comes to temptation. See, to follow the Son of God, to be successful in defeating Satan and temptation, to follow the Son of God, we must be filled with the Spirit of God and fight with the Word of God. So we face a foe who is so much more powerful than we are on our own. He's deceptive. He's determined to destroy us. And the results of sin that temptation often yields are catastrophic in our lives. Some of us spend days, months, years of our precious lives entangled in sin. And the the suffering and the pain and the damage of our sin can be overwhelming and unyielding. But believe her. We don't have to fight on our own. We have Jesus. And he has conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. And Satan may have power in this world, but Jesus overcame the world. Satan may be called the prince of the power of the air, but friends, we serve the risen and reigning King Jesus. See, the temptation may seem too strong, but Paul would tell the church at Corinth, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful. He will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. There's always a way of escape. And we have a Savior that understands. He can sympathize with our weakness. He's been tempted in all things like we are. Maybe for some of us today, we don't start with resisting or refuting. We start with repenting. Whatever it costs for us to turn away from whatever it is we're stuck in will cost us far less than what our enemy wants to take from us. See, for the remainder of our time on earth, we will never face a day when we don't face temptation. Let's remember the tactics of the enemy and follow the triumph of our example. Remember, to to follow the Son of God We must be filled with the Spirit of God and fight with the Word of God. You want to know the truth about temptation? The truth about temptation is we have a very real and present adversary who is actively fighting against us and is much more powerful than we are on our own. But still, the truth about temptation is He's no match for our God. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is truth. God, how would we navigate this life? How would we navigate the arrows of Satan, the attack on our lives to destroy us, to ultimately hurt your kingdom? God, he wants to wreck us just like he wanted to wreck your son. 
God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a defense. God, thank you for the power and the strength that we don't have our own on our own, but we have in Jesus. God, it's in the triumphant name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen.